Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. It's so good to be gathered together. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And it is good, as Jaime reminded us, to be together, particularly during this Advent season, uh, a year that has been so challenging. And as you may have noticed on the bulletins, we are beginning a new sermon series, um, an Advent sermon series uh, on the idea of God with us. Right, Emmanuel. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount um, in Matthew chapter 6, where uh, struggle, um, the idea is that struggle comes as we focus more on ourselves and we try to gain a sense of certainty in the midst of uncertain times. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on together and how does God meet us in the midst of that. So if you would, please turn with me now uh, to Matthew chapter 6. You can turn in your Bibles or look with this in the screens or on your own personal screens as well. Uh, that's Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore... I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. If you would, let's pray now. Our God and Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Lord, that you have spoken to us through Jesus Christ here. And we pray, Father, that as we consider your words, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to do your will. We pray it in Christ our Lord. Amen. Last year, the New Yorker ran a satirical article about a new product that is available to all of us if you so choose to purchase it, or perhaps if you're like me, you have purchased this satirical uh, uh, item for yourself already. It says this, Hello, and thank you for your recent purchase of a generalized anxiety home security system. The Generalized Anxiety Home Security System is one of the most popular products on the market with 40 million customers in the United States alone. One perk of your Generalized Anxiety Home Security System is that it remains on 24-7. That means no matter the hour, 
your generalized anxiety home security system is monitoring for all the certain dangers that lie in wait just outside of your home, but also inside of your home as well. You'll be happy to know that the generalized anxiety home security system now comes with early alert. A feature that alerts you of dangers before the system has even identified what those dangers are. The early alert system ensures that you'll walk around perpetually prepared for some kind of unspecified disaster. If you have a nagging feeling that something is wrong, but you can't figure out what it is, and that somehow makes it worse, that just means early alert is working. Have you been saying hors d'oeuvres wrong this whole time? What if someone makes you sing in front of a large group of people someday? Do all of your friends have a separate group text where they talk about the dumb things that you said in the original group text? Would it be worse for you to get Alzheimer's disease or for your spouse to get Alzheimer's disease? You must decide now. You have a meeting six weeks from now. What are all of the ways that it could go wrong? Have you done enough to prepare for the inevitable deaths of every person that you love? Well, we truly do hope that you enjoy our product. Now isn't it time to, get, to check that your generalized anxiety home security system is still working, you know, just in case? Well, um, I love that article. It captures very much a lot of the things that many of us feel. And anxiety and worry is something that the New Yorker recognized was on the rise as early as last year. But um, they had no idea what was coming down the pike in 2020. How many of us had any idea what was coming? Now, imagine that none of you in 2019 were thinking, my New Year's resolution is to be joy-filled and productive in quarantine all year long. If you had that kind of foresight, let's talk later. No, our, our passage this morning is particularly challenging given the context that we find ourselves in right now. This is a worrisome and anxiety-filled season. Imagine that at your lowest, you came to me as your pastor to say, hey, I need to talk, pastor. Let's, let's, let's go out to lunch. So we go out to lunch and we talk and I'm listening to you and I finally pat you on the shoulder and I say as a response to everything that you were saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Right? It, would ima- it, it might feel within that context like somehow that I wasn't listening or that I wasn't caring for you. Right? But this passage isn't talking about all aspects of anxiety and worry. This, pas- this passage isn't talking everything that we're struggling with right now. It's talking about something very specific. Right? It's talking about the specific anxiety that is wrong because it is the anxiety that results from a lack of of faith. Specifically, we're going to focus on the selfish and self-interested response that we have to God's care for us in the world. This type of anxiety is a specific area in which this passage is directing our attention, not to the whole of everything that we're struggling with and feeling. Of course, we are complex creatures. Right, where our body influences our mind and our soul, and our soul can influence our mind and our body, and everything is wrapped up all in between. But when we come to this topic of anxiety, we can often treat it like it's some sort of cafeteria tray. 
right? That there's your fight or flight uh, based adrenaline anxiety, and it's right here. And then you have your uh, brain based, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, brain chemistry issues with anxiety right here, and then you have your faith-based anxiety issues over here, and they never actually seem to connect with one another. But that's not true at all. We are an interconnected, uh, complex being, far more like a sushi roll than we are like, uh, like, like a cafeteria tray. Everything is combined into one. So while we're talking about one aspect of anxiety this morning, all of these different categories that I was talking about, they're all connected. And they all have the ability to enhance anxiety or to diminish anxiety. But today, we're going to be talking about this specifically. Anxiety as an inward struggle with a tendency to fixate on the future. You may have heard that anxiety and depression are often two sides of the same coin, and that's true. Right? Depression is often an overindulgence in dwelling upon the past, whereas anxiety is often produced with overindulgent uh, thinking about the future. Well, Christians and non-Christians alike can struggle with anxiety. And so those of us who are here in this room who call ourselves Christians, despite the fact that we believe in our minds that God is in control, we can still live and operate as if, we are in control, right? As if we are kind of practical atheists, so to speak. We live as if the future that we want is up to us to achieve. And when we live that way, it only produces anxiety. The point is this. Jesus is teaching us that worry and anxiety grow as we focus inwardly on ourselves but as we look outside of ourselves and toward our faithful God, we'll begin to see and experience the kingdom of God, which brings a peace that passes all understanding. So we're going to look at this passage in three parts. The worry that we experience as we look inwardly first. Then the second is going to be the worry that we experience as we dwell on the wrong outside things, specifically on capricious idols. And then third, we're going to look at the peace that comes by faith in a faithful God. So let's look first at the worry that we experience when we look inwardly. Jesus begins this passage with the word, therefore. Right? And therefore, when you're reading the Bible, is a good code word to read what came before it. Um, and the passage that came right before this in the Sermon on the Mount um, is connecting what Jesus is saying here about anxiety to uh, the idea that we cannot serve mammon, right, the pretend God of money, and Yahweh. Right? It says in that passage that we cannot serve those two masters. So the therefore in verse 25 connects the idea of being anxious about our life with the desire to serve the idolatrous God of money. So in essence... Right, the more that we desire to take control of our own lives or, or the more that we desire for our own sense of security, the more internally divided that we become as we try and serve these two masters. And the more divided we, come, we become, the more anxious we become. Money is not the problem in that passage. The love of money is the problem of that previous section. 
But in light of this current section, we find that even that is a mere symptom of a greater problem. It is the desire for independence from God. Our divided heart that both longs to be completely independent and self-secure is the problem. The more money that we have, the more likely we fall into the false belief that we can control our own outcomes. Right? We can begin to feel like we don't really need much from God or others. We have enough in our savings account to kind of cover most of the emergency situations that we find ourselves in. Or we can begin to feel like we don't need to worry about our physical ailments as much because we can afford to go to see the doctor to take care of it. Or maybe the best doctor to take care of it if it's in the biggest circumstances. But even on a communal level, we can begin to feel like we don't need to worry because maybe we don't have the sense that our homes are ever going to be broken into because our neighborhoods pay for extra security police to roam the neighborhoods or extra fencing or even extra security systems. And all of that can lead to a sense that we are in control. Again, money is not the problem. But the abundance of resources can give the impression that we are in control and that we can achieve the things that we want or the things that we think we need or are important. Jesus is not saying in this passage that the desire for food or the desire for clothes is wrong or sinful. Rather, he's challenging us to not overstate those needs in any way. We need not overinflate those needs. As we look inward and as we pay more attention to, to what our needs are or what our wants are, the more that we begin to crowd out the actual needs that we have in our life. As one commentator said, we betray ourselves when we become slaves to the lowest of our needs. Right? We are creatures of a personal God and Father. And we are only truly alive if we are in Him. But as we turn inward and as we pay attention to the hunger pains that we want for influence or desire for self-glory or the all-consuming nature of self-help, well then anxiety, of course, is going to begin to take over. One of my favorite commentators is a man by the name of Leva Erasmo Maricakis. Um, I think I like him just because of how pretentious his name sounds. But he wrote this about this passage, and I think it's beautiful. He said, an unexpected reversal occurs here, whereby Christ challenges our worldly values and norms of behavior. The warrior the overachiever who is always calculating losses and gains and providing for the morrow, the person who is considered a responsible adult, is here judged by Christ to be wasting his time on trifles, to be throwing away the better part of his energy and talents on a cause without a future. His soul is atrophying from lack of use. It's choking from incarceration. It's not that working hard is wrong. It's not that pursuing responsibilities is wrong. It's not even that saving and planning is wrong or that wanting to look nice or to eat well is wrong. No, but there is a way in which our modern culture has idolized self-sufficiency to the point that we lose sight of the truth, that we were never created for self-sufficiency. We were never created to be self-sufficient. 
we were created for complete dependence upon God. But as we focus inwardly on our desires and on our dreams, and as we try to live self-sufficiently, then we cut ourselves off from the streams of living water, right? We cut ourselves off from God himself, and our soul will begin to dry up, and the anxious and worrying desert, so to speak, takes its place. Let me be the first to admit my own struggles with anxiety. For many of y'all who've known me for most of my life and perhaps even just over the last six years that I've been here, this is a part of my life. And I know as I've been pastoring and caring for many of you that it's a part of your lives as well. And it's a growing problem. In June of 2020, um, there was a poll conducted. Over 30% of U.S. adults reported struggling with severe anxiety symptoms, which is dramatically up from the previous year. Imagine what it is right now, five months later into this pandemic. You probably are feeling it yourselves. Has the desert of anxiety grown in your own life? How much more do you get... Right now, what, what I call, we call the Sunday scaries. It's a, a term that we heard borrowed from another CTK, Christ the King member here, uh, for that dread that you feel on Sunday night when you have to take care of all of that comes during the work week. How much more are you experiencing that right now? I would imagine a little bit more. Or perhaps it's less dread and more a constant mental compilation of tasks for fear that you might drop one of the many balls that you're trying to juggle? Or is it a fear that the future that you were holding on to, that you were dreaming about, is now gone or you can't really make it happen right now? Or you've been let go from your job or you're stuck in a job that you don't like or your neighborhood is changing or your city is changing or our world is changing in such a way that you don't like it. It isn't what you had imagined for yourself or to raise a family in. You feel stuck and you feel sad. All of these fears, these worries, these anxieties, they're, they're actually they're coming from within. And when we look to ourselves to fix or we look to ourselves to secure our future from all of the potential threats or, or even as we see ourselves as the potential solution, there is no other option than anxiety despair, or at best, maybe some short-term victory over some of these things, only to lead to later anxiety or despair, right? One of my professors wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this about this passage. He says, the secret of freedom from anxiety is freedom from ourselves and the abandonment of our own plans the less that we focus inwardly and the less tightly that we hold on to our own plans and dreams, actually the less worry that we will begin to feel. So then what do we do if we're not to look inwardly? Well, okay, maybe let's look outwardly. So that leads us to our second point. Right? We can turn outwardly at times toward capricious idols. Jesus says in verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all of these things. 
when you're reading the passage, you're like, where did they come from? That, uh, we, we weren't talking about them, and all of a sudden the Gentiles make an appearance. Why is he singling them out? Don't we all think about what we might want to eat or drink or wear? It's not just them. Why is he picking on the Gentiles here? Well, the singling out is less about the worry for what we might eat or drink and more with the means by which we worry. Jesus is saying that the way the Gentiles worry about what to eat, drink, or wear is what is not to be emulated. Their behavior shouldn't be copied because it only leads to more worry. They don't turn inwardly, as we talked about earlier. They turn outwardly toward capricious idols, in particular, toward the capricious gods that they worshipped. So if uh, let's go back to maybe seventh grade Greek mythology and, and remember a little bit about the Greek and Roman gods of the surrounding culture. They were tempestuous at best. But the Gentiles believed that they were going to receive blessing. Then, if that, was, if that was the case and they were going to get blessing, then they needed to do everything in their power to entreat the gods to bless them, to do something for them. All right, the gods... Bless those who bless them. And there's almost this karmic-like relationship in Greek mythology. I need to do everything in my power so that they can give me what I want and what I need. I will sacrifice for them, and then they'll give me better food to eat. Or uh, if I say the right kinds of prayers in the right kinds of ways, then they will give me the clothing that I need, so on and so forth. The Greek and Roman gods were incredibly fickle. Even if you prayed the right prayers and made the right sacrifices, they might decide not to bless you anyways. Right? When the Gentiles looked outside of themselves for comfort and assurance, they didn't always know what they were going to get. And the same is true for us. When we look to something outside of ourselves for comfort, we better be sure that whatever we're looking to is faithful not fickle. The more fickle and unstable, the more likely we are to worry about it. How can we rest assured that our future is secure when the thing or the person or the job that we're placing our faith in isn't a sure thing, right? It's that thin ice that Jaime was talking about earlier. For that reason, we are to avoid the example of the Gentiles. But if we're honest with ourselves, whether we are formal polytheists or not, we can still treat God as if he is fickle, even as Christians. I need to be on my best behavior so that God might not hurt me or so that God might bless me. We treat God like a cosmic Santa Claus, worrying that maybe we need to make sure we're on the nice list and not the naughty list so that we don't get the coal and we want to get the good gifts. We treat God and his good graces that he has given to us as means by which we can control him in some ways. If I pray more, then he will bless me. Or if I give more to the church or to him, then he might give me more and so on. You see, this mindset still depends on you and me. It depends on us. Even though we're looking onward or looking outward, we still are acting as if God only cares about us to the extent that we demonstrate 
that we care about him. But God is not unstable. Right? He is constant and he is faithful. And it's because of who he is, not because of who we are, that as we learn to look out to him, that the anxieties and the worries of the world actually will begin to melt away. And that leads to our third point, the peace that comes by faith in a faithful God. Jesus reminds us here in this passage that he is a provider, that God is a provider. The God who created the birds is the same one who sustains the birds. The God who created the flowers is the same one who sustains them and provides for them. This is not to say that famines don't come and flowers don't die. Of course they do. It's a reminder that the God who creates is the same God who providentially sustains all things. And if God cares enough to sustain the birds and the flowers, then how much more does he care for his crowning achievement of creation for you and me? Does he not care more for us? God gives food for the birds. He sustains the birds. God robes the flowers in glory and in clothes of splendor. He cares enough about them not only to make them alive, but to make them beautiful. Will he not too provide for you and me? Will he not too make us beautiful? Jesus reminds us that the future we try and secure for ourselves is ever fleeting. But the future that is promised in God is guaranteed. It's guaranteed because he is the author and the beginner. He is the sustainer unto the very end. He's powerful, righteous, good, and loving. He is faithful. And he is therefore worthy of our faith. He knows all things. He is powerful over all things, and he invites us to seek first his kingdom. That's the context into which that command comes. We are to first serve, seek first the kingdom of God. That's to say that we're to seek his priorities first. We're to seek his rule first. The things that God says are important are the things that should be most important to us. And all of my dreams are subservient to his. The world that I want for myself will only bring worry and anxiety at best, and it will bring ruin at worst. But as I seek his rule and his ways, and as I submit to his will, then I gain his peace and freedom and joy. Last week, we put together a video many of you may have seen about Uh, the Christ the King soccer uh, experience that we had this last fall that I got to be a part of. Um, And and sports and the gospel have been something that I've been passionate about for most of my adult life. I think it's a unique opportunity to instruct not only kids but actually adults as well. And I've always felt like Christians have done it poorly. That Christians, uh, Christian sports playing is, is basically the exact same as everyone else, but you kind of baptize it with, excuse me, with a a prayer beforehand or with a prayer afterwards or maybe with a prayer both beforehand and afterward. But prior to coming to Houston, I was the head lacrosse coach at a school in Austin called the Regent School of Austin. It's a Christian school there. And uh, while I was there, at the end of the year, 
It was a tradition that you had to come up with three awards to give out to your players. And I thought, this is a great opportunity uh, to maybe influence this a, a little bit differently. So the, the first two awards uh, were, were your standard awards, the most improved player, the most valuable player. But the third award was the one I was most excited about. It was called the Eric Little Award. It was titled after the historic figure who was made famous by the movie Chariots of Fire. Little was an Olympic runner, and in the movie Chariots of Fire, he's contrasted against one of his teammates uh, and fellow Olympic runners named Harold Abrams. For Abrams, running was life. He was defined by his ability to win. And he famously says toward the end of the movie as he's staring out at the Olympic track, he says this, in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He has a particular dream for his future. He, it's to win. And there's nothing else that he's dreaming about. But the anxiety is beginning to get to him because he knows that he may not have the power or the ability to guarantee that future. Little, on the other hand, was characterized by his sense of freedom and joy. He even physically ran with that sense of freedom and joy. It was loose and all over the place. And it was because he ran in the knowledge of who God made him to be. In probably the most famous line of the movie, Little says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I'm pretty proud of myself. That's two services I didn't do that with a Scottish accent. Little is not defined by his ability to win or lose a race. He is defined by the purpose that God has set before him. And in what we know historically to be true, that purpose was not only to run, but to also be a Christian missionary unto China, where his life ultimately ended. But by giving this award out to my lacrosse players, what I was hoping to teach them was that to play sports Christianly is not just to play like everyone else, but with a little bit of prayer on top. No, instead... It is to recognize that all good gifts come from God. And when we play, when we work, when we teach, or when we coach, we can do so in two different ways. We can either try and justify our entire existence, or we can play and feel and enjoy his pleasure in the midst of it. It's not just about athletics. The rest of life is just the same. Do we have a particular future that we are holding on to? Is it one that without, without whatever that is that you're thinking about, that we would lose all sense of purpose? Are we treating our lives like Harold Abrams treated that race? I have to get or to keep that particular job or else I have not, well, in order to justify my entire existence. Or maybe you're thinking, I have to get into that college or to stay in that college in order to justify my entire existence. Or what is just as likely 
Are you holding on so tightly to a future that you have acted as or believe as somehow guaranteed you? Are you fearful maybe of losing a loved one that you have expected to be together with you for 30, 40, 50 or more years? There is no guarantee. In so many different ways, we can look inwardly, right, for our future glory. Or we can look outwardly to try and justify ourselves or to use those other things in our life to gain our outcomes. But God teaches us that we are to seek him. And as we seek him and as we hold our future with an open palm, We're not guaranteed a life without trial. Of course, trials still come, but God promises that he is with us in the midst of it and that there will be peace in the midst of it. Because we are promised his ultimate future. For it is in the future that, that those who have placed their faith and trust in him will experience and know his true victory, his final peace. And we will be clothed with an eternal beauty. I am to be a father, a husband, a pastor, a friend, in light of what God is doing in the world. His purposes inform them. It's not according to any ideas that I have about what that ought to look like. But his purposes alone. God is at work. And God is good. And that informs our future and how we live now. Let me conclude with this. As as we go back out into the world, it can almost feel like, okay, I need to seek first God's kingdom. And we can maybe do that by trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go out there and seek God's kingdom first. No, we're to be reminded Again and again and again that the Lord who tells us to seek his kingdom first is the same Lord who has sought you first in Jesus Christ. While we were still pursuing our own dreams, while we were seeking our independence, while we were looking inwardly, God sought us and he came among us and he invites us into his kingdom. By the blood of his own son. Would that we respond from turning inside. May we turn outside to a faithful and loving Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. And that though we seek our own dreams and our uh, our own ideas of needs. Lord, that you have sought us in Jesus Christ. You have taught us that your kingdom is primary. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, that we would be brought up in the knowledge that Jesus loves us and continues to go with us into all of our circumstances. May we hold loosely the future that you, uh, that you have for us or that we have for ourselves, knowing that your future is guaranteed in Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name by the, by the Spirit. Amen.